KXSFLP San Francisco and KXSF.FM. All right. Well, I guess that means I don't have to do the announcement. Hello, everyone. You are listening to KXSFLP San Francisco. This is Pamela Louie for Fifth Grade Radio and Clearly Drinking. And uh, God, I missed last week. Well, I missed last week for a good reason. I had the sinus infection from hell. I haven't had one of those in since I was like a teenager. It's not fun. Uh, but I'm so happy to be back here today. Uh, I have two interviews. In a few minutes, I will be joined by Honey Mahogany, who is a candidate for supervisor in District 6 in San Francisco. And then at three o'clock, I'll be joined by Haley Bash, who is a, uh, a political donor, organizer, activist. And uh, I'm sure that'll be a really good follow-up to the interview with uh, Honey Mahogany. So uh, I just wanted to let everyone know about that. Let's see, I'm waiting for Honey. In the meantime, what did I miss last week? Well. The weekend, not this past weekend, the weekend before, of course, was hardly strictly bluegrass. And how much fun was that for those of you who were there? It was so great to be able to just be outside in the park again, listen to great music. And hardly strictly bluegrass has such a great vibe. Uh, and the music, as always, was just terrific. And uh, I think for a lot of people, it just showed how much we missed it, having not been able to go for three years. So it was terrific. I think that for me, the highlights of it were, uh, well, the Rainbow Girls, but you know, we all, not we all, a lot of us here are big Rainbow Girls fans. Uh, the Rainbow Girls were terrific. Allison Russell was really, really good. Then uh, uh, Rihanna Giddens with uh, Francesco Teresi was like, wow, that just like blew, totally blew me away. Uh, Jerry Harrison and Adrian Ballou which I was a little, I, was, I thought at first it was going to be uh, just remain in light, like the whole album, but it wasn't. But they did basically mostly talking head songs from like the late seventies. That was just like amazing. They opened up with Psycho Killer. And what was so cool about it was that everyone knew the words. Like there were people there who were like barely teenagers, tweens. And there were people there who were, you know, probably in their 70s or more, even older. And like everyone knew the words. It just, it goes to show that there were some bands that just are like, had that multi-generational appeal. And I think the Talking Heads definitely are one of those. And I was thinking to myself, what are some other bands that have that? And I, I honestly, I'm not so sure. Like I was thinking, do the Stones have that? Like do kids who are like 15 years old, do they know the words to like Stone song? They probably do. Okay, so let's say the Stones and maybe... The Beatles, but I don't know. Patty Smith does, and it's a different kind of thing. But Patty Smith definitely does. When I when I go to Patty shows, there's always there are always people there of fair of different ages. So that's that's really cool. But yeah, it's great to see. And if there's one thing music does, is that it does bring people together. It's a great equalizer. Uh, maybe we just need to like take some people like Vladimir Putin and just stick them in a room and make them listen to like. Amy Lou Harris, and maybe that would have a, make a difference. I don't know. It might, it might not. Uh, so let's see, we're going to get on with the show today. In just a few minutes, we uh, let's just start. We're going to do a quick underwriting promotion and we'll be right. Okay, well, uh, so let's get right to it. I am so thrilled to be joined today on this episode of Fifth Wave Radio, Queerly Drinking by Honey Mahogany, who is a 
candidate for uh, supervisor for District 6. And honey, you have done so many things that I feel like I, it's not for me to to read your bio because I would never do it justice. Uh, so if you could just start off and tell our listeners a, a bit about who you are and how you came to run for office. Sure. Um, well, first of all, can you hear me okay? I can hear you great. Okay, perfect. Yeah. Well, um, thanks for having me um, back here. It feels like just yesterday we were here talking about Commando. Um, <laughs> now we're yeah, talking- that, that, was, that was really fun, by the way. That was like, and I was thinking, God, maybe if we have some time, I'll put on a Commando song, but I'm not sure if we'll have the time for that. Let, let's see. All right. Okay. Well, here's hoping. Yeah. But um, just a little bit about me, I guess. Um, you know, I talk often a lot about the facts that, you know, I've grew up here in San Francisco, um, but actually my family did not. My family are refugees from Ethiopia um, and they came here during the late seventies um, because they believed like many immigrants in the American dream um, that if you come here and work hard and, you know, your children can get an education, then, you know, anything's possible. And so they really uh, sacrificed a lot um, to be able to send me and my uh, brother to Catholic school here. So I went to uh, St. Gabriel's out in the outer sunset and then went to St. Ignatius after that. And uh, the reason that I bring that up is because, you know, um, even though I maybe clearly disagree with many of the teachings of the Catholic church, um, there were some that I think I really took to heart because of that. And that includes, you know, being a person for others, being of service to others and, you know, being the change you want to see in the world. And that really helped shape my life. Um, That's why got my master's in social work from UC Berkeley. And for the last 20 years, I've been working in social work. Um, My first full-time job actually was at Larkin Street Youth Services here in San Francisco, um, where I was literally working to get kids off the streets and into housing, into recovery and helping them rebuild their lives. Um, And, you know, that, that work really, really, um, I think expanded when after I got my MSW and um, worked as the mental health director and the community programs director of the Rainbow Community Center in Contra Costa County. And um, part of the work that we did there was both in our um, public schools, setting up counseling um, programs and GSAs in some of the public schools in Contra Costa County. But also um, I did one-on-one individual client work with people who were displaced from places like San Francisco to places like Pittsburgh and Antioch. And unfortunately, what we saw happen far too often was, you know, this removal of people from an ecosystem and a care system where they received a lot of support. And there was a lot of city infrastructure like public transit, and they could make it to their appointments and their community was around them to being displaced to places like Pittsburgh and Antioch where they were completely isolated from community. And so that um, displacement ended up leading to them really uh, decompensating in a lot of ways and self-medicating. And it really became a life or death situation for me. Um, That paired with my own family's experience, right? Um, When many people came to San Francisco, during the 70s and 80s in my family, um, there were about 30 of us, including kids who were born here, who lived in the city. And now um, we're really just limited to um, two of us that are left. And that incredible amount of displacement, I mean, is is a testament to the fact that San Francisco is no longer a very welcoming city to immigrants, uh, to refugees of all kinds. Um, And as we know, you know, with what's happening across the country right now, LGBT people in in particular are uh, going to be coming to places like San Francisco just in order to be themselves. Um, and so we have a, a duty, I think, to make sure that San Francisco continues to be a welcoming place. And that's part of the reason why I 
um, worked to help um, found the Transgender Cultural District here in San Francisco, was involved with that and was its first executive director. And um, I was also involved with um, Saving the Stud from Closure um, seven or eight years ago now and became one of the co-owners. Um, and that work really uh, for me showed how important it was to get involved locally in politics. Like we talk about national politics all the time. It's on the news, who's president, what's happening with Congress. But the fact is that local politics really have a tremendous impact on our day-to-day -day lives. Um, they help shape what kind of housing is built in our city, um, you know, how uh, easily businesses are able to open or, or um, you know, how they are supported or not supported, public safety, so many other things that are really, really, really local um, involve if you want to make an impact, you have to get involved in local government. And so um, I ended up becoming first appointed and then winning election to the San Francisco Democratic Party <laughs> to help be a part of those conversations. Um, and currently I serve as its chair, actually, and have for um, over a year now. And, um, you know, a lot of the work that we do at the Democratic Party is endorse local candidates and propositions. Um, but especially lately, we've also been broadening that work to do phone banking across the state and across the country to really grow our Democratic majorities in Congress so that we can't let just like one or two people um, like, you know, Joe Manchin obstruct us from passing incredibly important legislation um, that will have an incredible impact on all of our lives. Um, so that's some of the work we do with the Democratic Party. Um, and then of course, I will say that the last four years I've really uh, concentrated on work in District 6. I um, worked as a legislative aide and chief of staff to our former supervisor, Matt Haney. Um, he's now our assemblyman, but he has you know, endorsed me in this race because he knows that my experience on the ground, both as a small business owner, but also as a, as a social worker dealing with <laughs> our biggest issues, mental health, addiction, homelessness, um, really, um, especially when paired with my experience in City Hall, legislating and advocating for this district uh, makes me an ideal candidate and somebody who will be able to deliver from day one for um, the residents and constituents of District 6. Um, I feel very passionately that we have to hit the ground running. Um, downtown recovery in San Francisco is one of the slowest recovering downtowns of any big city. Um, and District 6 holds a holds an outsized role in, in setting that right. And so I'm, I'm ready to hit the ground running, advocate for safe streets, building more housing, and especially really making sure that our business sector in downtown is able to thrive so that we can get those tax dollars to um, fund all of the important work that needs to happen on the ground. Well, great. So let's just get right into it then. And, and I was going to ask you, about how we make San Francisco a more welcoming city. So I'm, I'm glad you brought it up and we will definitely get there. Uh, so yeah, lots to discuss here. Uh, so District 6, for those people who are listening who are not familiar, don't know like what District 6, uh, where it encompasses. If you could, I know it's like the Tenderloin, part of downtown, I think part of SOMA, like wh what is District 6? So the District 6 did used to include the Tenderloin, but we went through a really, really uh, controversial redistricting process that split up the Tenderloin from the south of Market. Um, and so now what is left of District 6 is the south of Market, a little bit of the sort of Civic Center um, mid-market area, uh, but mostly it's all below Market Street um, and includes Soma, Mission Bay, Rincon Hill, Treasure Island, South Beach, and um, also uh, Showplace Square, um, all areas in that sort of Soma Triangle. Um, but then it also includes Treasure Island. So that's also a really important part of our district. 
Wow, that's interesting. Okay, so I learned something here. I've I've been a sleep at the, the what's going on with our local politics. So okay, uh, well, what do you see as being the priorities for your district? Yes, I mean the number one thing is definitely public safety. I mean we definitely saw this um, when it came to the district attorney recall that public safety was very top of mind for people. And regardless of where you fell on the recall, I think that people will admit that you know we are experiencing you know more car break-ins. We are experiencing um, more um, people. People just feel unsafe um, on the streets. A lot of that has to do with the the drug dealing and drug use that's happening on the streets. Um, and then a, the, on the flip side of, of uh, safe streets is also, of course, uh, uh, pedestrian deaths and bicyclist deaths um, by um, by car. You know, um, we have a tremendous amount of high in, high injury um, networks uh, in District Six. So all of those things are really high priorities for me. Um, you know, I personally believe. And it's not just a belief. This is also based on my experience uh, working in the District 6 office and as a small business owner, um, that there has been a real failure on our city's part um, for um, um, in terms of maintaining the public's trust. Um, and that goes both for our elected leaders, um, but also for our police department. Um, I can't tell you how many small business owners I've talked to who said they've called the police and they either haven't come or when they've come, they haven't been helpful. Um, I'll never forget there was once one um, one bar owner who talked to me about, um, you know, waking up to an alarm <clears throat> that his bar had been was being broken into and that he showed up and then the police showed up shortly thereafter and pulled a guy out of the bar who broke into his business and then said to him, well, what do you want us to do? <laughs> and he said, well, he just broke into my bar. You should, you know, arrest him and, you know, take him, take him away. And they said, no, well, we can't do that. And we have another call. And they left him there with the, um, the estate, you know, the person who broke into his business sort of, oh. you know, that, what, yeah. that could have been a very dangerous situation for that um, bar owner. Wow. That, so, that's, yeah. That's shocking. Well, I just want to get back to, to, to some of the points that you brought up. Um, so let's start with public safety. And look, I have a, a friend whose car has gotten broken into like three times in the last three months. And, and we, um, we've we all heard these stories, right? But it's not just San Francisco, it's not just Oakland. This is happening. Public safety is an issue throughout the country. And it, it's one because my belief is because we have some really deep systemic problems. Uh, one that you hit on, which is drug use, especially you know opioid use and the way that we've I think mishandled dealing with that. Uh, income inequality is another one. Mental health is another one. I know that mental health is something that is incredibly near and dear to your heart. But even though it's a problem throughout the entire country, that doesn't, you can't just say, well, it's not just San Francisco, it's the, it's the country, this is the cycle. You gotta say, no, okay, we gotta do, it might be happening everywhere, but we need to deal with what's happening here. So what, what, do, what are some of your proposals and ideas on how to increase public safety? Uh, and I, I think that also the you know pedestrian deaths, I know we were talking about something. It is a safety issue, although it's, it's different from crime. Uh, but then I think the distrust of the cops and local leaders, I think it, to me, these issues are all somehow related to each other. So what are some of your ideas to make District 6 uh, a safer place for the people who live there? Yeah, um, well, let's, let's just talk first about people, um, you know, 
how how we can deal with staffing and sort of the trust issue around SFPD, et cetera. You know, I was one of the um, the people who really pushed for the funding of the mid-market safety plan, which utilizes urban alchemy and community ambassadors to really keep eyes on the streets. Um, and this actually stemmed from, you know, us funding and um, and writing an ordinance requiring the city to uh, to have 24 hour bathrooms, right? Uh, which, you know, we had a huge issue with um, waste on our streets and, um, but also no alternative place for people to go. And so we started opening these 24 hour bathrooms throughout the Tenderloin and also in Soma. And um, we wanted to keep them staffed because um, we needed to be cleaned and, you know, just to make sure that people were being safe, et cetera. And what we found was that when we staffed those bathrooms, that the, that entire block actually felt much more safe for residents. Um, and, you know, it made it, it made it so that the park nearby was more accessible later into the evening, et cetera. And so we really wanted to use that as a model for staffing the entire district and ensuring that, you know, again, people felt safe on the streets because honestly, one of the scariest things is, you know, walking down a street that's either completely empty or completely flooded with drug dealers. I mean, and those are two situations that happen a lot in District 6. And so having those community ambassadors on the on the ground, keeping an eye out for each other, for people's safety. Also, you know, letting folks know, that, hey, you can't, um, drug deal here like that, like that's not acceptable anymore. And laying those boundaries is really, really important and has been successful. Um, the only issue that I had with the mid-market safety plan, and this is something that I was very vocal about to anyone who would listen, is that if you only do it in certain areas and you don't have a district-wide strategy, it just pushes the problem somewhere else. Um, and that is exactly what has happened. There was a pilot program in just a few blocks or a few streets, and the issue just gets pushed over. And so I'm a huge proponent for doing a district-wide plan, um, and not just district-wide, but area wide throughout our downtown because you know the fact is that our city relies heavily on tourism and on conventions coming here um, and when I say that I mean not just our city um, in terms of our city services getting funded through tax dollars but also a lot of our small businesses our restaurants bars etc all rely on those the traffic that is created by those conventions and tourism in order to make ends meet and so we should take a vested interest in keeping our downtown safe um, and accessible so that you know tourists and and uh convention goers and residents as well are not, are not harassed. Um, I also believe that this, you know, we are down as a city about 600 police officers um, from where we're supposed to be at, according to our city charter. And I think that, you know, I, I'm okay with hiring more police. Um, I think that, you know, they're a part of, they're definitely a part of the solution. Honestly, if you cannot have worked in the district six office and not know that. Um, and I, when I'm speaking to, you black trans women, you know, people of color, poor folks, immigrants, all who live in these downtown areas, what they ask us is where are the police and why aren't they doing their jobs? So I think that part of it is, you know, making sure that the police are doing their jobs and holding them accountable. Um, we may need to hire some more police as well, but I think alternatively, this also provides us with the unique opportunity to look at more models of policing. Um, one of the things that I find to be incredibly um, important is again, that eyes on the streets. I think we should um, have community ambassadors now and for the short term and maybe even into the long term, but we also have an opportunity to create community patrol officers um, based on models in you know Sweden and um, the UK where um, they are unarmed officers who are, who are trained in de-escalation and um, who are meant to really keep the peace and prevent crime before it happens. Um, that I think is a way in which we can really help improve safety um, and keep our streets safe. And okay, again, so, 
Go ahead. Oh, I was going to ask about the ambassadors. Who are the the ambassadors who are, you know, not, who have been, let's say, patrolling the streets? Like, where where do you find these people? Well, um, so some of so there there are different kinds um, and different programs. I, I would say the most prevalent ones. There's three. One is Downtown Streets Team, which is a nonprofit that, that actually works with formerly homeless folks um, to help them to become ambassadors. It's sort of a way to get them a workforce training program. Um, that one, um, that that is a really great program that is uh, the city has been using for a long time. But I think that the ones that are most prevalent, especially downtown, are um, either um, ambassadors, community ambassadors, or workers hired by the CBDs, the community benefit districts in the districts, like Soma West CBD, Mid Market, um, Downtown, um, uh, East Cut, uh, Yerba Buena, all of these CBDs in, throughout um, District 6 in the downtown area have community ambassadors that are out there helping clean the streets, um, you know, doing things like also reversing overdoses with Narcan and um, and also keeping an eye for public safety. Um, and then the other folks specifically that were hired through the mid-market safety plan, for example, is a group called Urban Alchemy. And they um, are a program that per predominantly works with um, folks who are actually exiting incarceration to give them um, job training and jobs in working, you know, again, community ambassadorship sort of um training them in a sort of security, but also, again, community-based role um, where they're able to refer people to services or call folks um, in the community to help um, when necessary. Um, yeah. So, okay. I think that's like, all that sounds sounds great. These are all good ideas that they do work in other places too. But I, in a city right now where we do have like the violent crime, and I mean, it's not just car breakings. There are other things that happen. And look, I, I think that a lot of the statistics and that people are talking about the crime wave around the country, I think a lot of it is really overblown. Okay, I think a lot of it is is just a scare tactic to stir up. You know, uh, uh, frankly, I think a lot of it is is racist. But uh, still, like if someone is just just a, does is a community ambassador, uh, and the situation gets out of hand, like what is, what type of authority do they have? Uh, so that I guess that's the thing that I'm I'm wondering about because I I love this idea. I my guess is that there are people listening who think this is a wonderful idea. But what happens if you know, someone brandishes a gun? Uh, you know, at a community ambassador. Right, and that's why that's why um, I said earlier. You know, we police are part of the solution. Um, it can't be just community ambassadors. Um, and also, I want to. Um, delineate between community ambassadors and perhaps community patrol officers. So again, um, um, trained officers who are trained in de-escalation and don't necessarily have guns themselves, but um, can do more, I think, than the community ambassadors and also be more accountable to the city as an arm of the city um, than you know community ambassadors might be since they are technically working for nonprofits, right? Or the community benefits districts. Um, but uh, and and the reason that I, I I think that they're an important part of the solution is because again if they are if they are specifically uh, required to stay in a certain block radius and do foot patrols for example um, they can't really leave those areas but what we do need is for police especially armed police not necessarily to be standing on a corner because when they do that they can't respond to for example a shooting that's happening half a mile away or you know a robbery that happened. Police are, I think, most effective when they're able to be mobile. 
And so ensuring that we, we, when we're talking about keeping eyes on the streets, that it's community ambassadors and community patrol officers, but when it's, when it's responding to violent crimes and being able to be mobile and fast and responsive, that those be more of the armed officers. So I think, again, it has to be a coordinated strategy and system, um, especially given, uh, you know, I think the not just the political climate that we're in, but the moment that we're in right now um, in San Francisco's history, um, we really need to take this very seriously. So uh, another thing you raised, and this is an issue that is very near and dear to our heart at KXSF. Uh, one of our DJs was killed uh, a few years ago. It was a, a pedestrian death. Uh, and so how, what, what are some of your ideas on how to decrease that? Because it's, it's not just cars. There are also cyclists that are involved. Cyclists are both victims and cyclists are also kill people on their, their bikes too. And I think I, anyone who lives in the city knows that for all the cyclists who do obey the traffic laws, there are probably just as many who don't. So yes. Yeah. Um, I, I have seen that. Um, well, I will just say this. I, um, I'm definitely a huge walker. I don't own a car anymore. I used to, um, several years ago and own a car in the city and just became really impossible. Um, dealing with car break-ins, dealing with, uh, parking tickets. And I just got rid of it and have relied mostly on, on public transit and, and ride shares. And, um, uh, but my partner bikes everywhere. Um, so he bikes to, to and from work every day, Bart bikes all weekend, you know, d does the AIDS life cycle. Um, he's, a, he's a huge biker. And um, one of the things that I am really proud that I was able to be a part of with the District 6 office working under Supervisor Haney was we led the largest bike lane expansion in the city um, and, and really have a lot of prote protected bike lanes um, in District 6. So those are things that really do help to make the city more downtown more bikeable um, and safer for bikers. Um, but the one thing that I think that we are missing is really enforcement. And, you know, that goes for, you know, people who are speeding, um, people who are, for example, driving in bike lanes or parking in bike lanes. Um, and it also goes for, you know, bikers who are breaking the law as well. Um, and again, I don't think that this needs to be police. I think that this, we can empower, um, you know, civilian um I don't think civilian is the right word, but people who don't necessarily work for the police department. So SFMTA, for example, to do some of that work and do some of that ticketing. Um, and specifically when it comes to, you know, again, um, speeding, for example, we could do more, um, explore more photo enforcement, although I know that that's complicated. Um, but uh, I do think that a key reason that we are seeing these these fatalities is because um, there's little accountability when people do things um, like run a red light or, you know, uh, drive in a bike lane. And that's something we absolutely could improve on. Yeah. We need to take a quick break. Uh, we'll be right back. You are listening to Fifth Wave Radio Clearly Drinking. This is Pamela Louie. My guest today is Honey Mahogany. And we'll be back in just a, a minute. Okay. We are back here. You are listening to KXSF. FM San Francisco, this is Fifth Wave Radio Queerly Drinking, and my guest today is Honey Mahogany, who is running for the supervisor seat in District 6 in San Francisco. So we talked about some of the priorities for your district, uh, public safety, pedestrian, you know, addressing, lowering pedestrian deaths, and distrust of the police and, and local leaders being, I guess, the three that you mentioned. What do you think are or should be the priorities for San Francisco as a city? Well, one of the things that we absolutely need to prioritize is uh, housing. Um, we have, I don't know how 
how many people are aware, but you know, we actually as have a deal with the state where we have to build 80,000 units over um, 10 years. Um, you know, that's 8,000 units a year. And right now we are, you know, not anywhere near reaching that goal. Um, and so we've put forward a housing element with our sort of projected sort of projects that we have in the pipeline and how quickly we're anticipating to build. And, you know, that is being rejected by the state. And, um, you know, unfortunately, what could happen if we actually don't build enough housing here in San Francisco is the state could punish us by um, withholding funding for infrastructure, including building more affordable housing. Um, so we are we are in a lot of trouble as a city um, and we are gonna have to build a lot more housing much more quickly. Um, so housing is definitely a, a hugely important issue for our city and also for me specifically. In district six, um, while working there, um, I got to be um, head of our, uh, our, our land use and um, we approved 9,000 units of housing to be built, which is more than all of the other districts combined um, and more affordable housing than any of the other districts as well. Um, and, you know, District 6 cannot continue to be the only place where we build housing. We're going to have to build housing across the city if we're ever going to catch up. And again, this is um, this is really important for many for many reasons. One, again, across the country, I think we're going to have more and more queer people and trans people and probably women too, coming to places like San Francisco where they have protections and rights um, that they're currently not enjoying in other states. Um, and then also with climate change throughout the state, um, many places are becoming unlivable or you know, burning year after year. So places like San Francisco that are you know, cooler, more stable, safer, um, are gonna become, are gonna have to really um, take in more of our state's population. So we have to get ready for that. Um, and we have to ensure that, you know, we are doing everything we can to build um, as much housing and especially as much affordable and deeply affordable housing as possible. Um, I'm really interested in seeing the expansion of the social housing model in San Francisco. Um, that's a model where everyone, regardless of their income, pays only 30% of their income towards rent. So you could make $150,000 a year and live in this um, building. You could make $15,000 a year and live in the building. Um, and it all sort of balances out. And how much of that is happening right now? Well, technically, uh, we we have at least one building that I um, am aware of at 285 Turk was a project that was actually taken into community ownership and is being operated um, using a social housing model. Um, it's a model that's just getting going. There may be other projects in San Francisco as well. That's just one that I was sort of directly involved with and, and, and aware of. Um, and also, I will say that in order to make the model really successful, we're going to need some support from the state. So I know Assemblymember Alex Lee um, um, put a social housing bill forward um, um, at the state. It did pass the Assembly, but failed at the Senate. And so this next, this upcoming midterm election is going to be really important to, you know, increase our democratic and also progressive majorities in our, uh, in our uh, state Assembly and Senate so that we can pass bills that would allow for the funding of social housing programs throughout the state. Do you have any thoughts on props E and D, which, which both address housing, but in different ways? I, uh, I do. I mean, the, the, the two are, you know, somewhat similar. I will say that Prop D is, has been shown um, and, and, and proven to uh, build more housing. Um, it's actually going to get housing built. And so it's the one that I'm supporting. Um, you know, I think that Prop E, you know, um, is something that, I I am not supporting. Um, I'm not supporting Prop E. Um, I think it was designed largely to be a sort of a poison pill for Prop D. Um, and so um, it's not something that I am supporting right now. 
Okay, so other than housing, what, what do you think are some of the other priorities for San Francisco? Um, so we talked about housing, we talked about public safety. Yeah. Um, you know, I will say this again, like our downtown recovery is a really important part of our, um, what our city should be thinking about right now. Um, and we have fallen way behind. Um, part of that has to do with public safety, but, oh, I never talked about sort of the other end of public safety, which is, you know, the, um, addiction crisis and, uh, um, the mental health crisis that we're seeing on our streets. Um, you know, we definitely do not have enough beds, mental health beds, addiction and recovery beds in San Francisco, but I will say that we are making progress in adding beds to um, our count. However, one thing that we are utterly failing at is actually hiring enough crisis workers to do the work to take care of the people in those beds. Um, so just for some background, you know, I um, have my MSW, I have worked in residential care in San Francisco, um, and I know how it works. Um, and basically year after year, um, these providers, a lot of them nonprofit providers are being required to provide the same level or more service with less money. Um, meaning we do not, or we have not as a city really meant the increases in the cost of doing business for a lot of these nonprofits. And as the need on the street has grown, we've been giving them the same amount of money to keep doing that work and taking care of more people. And then we, uh, what what ends up happening is those workers who are underpaid um, are asked to work double shifts over time, um, sometimes at the last minute, um, they become completely burned out. And then on the other end, you have the patients, um, the people in recovery, the people that are trying to get help, getting less individualized care. Um, and as a result, um, you know, oftentimes not doing very well and either falling out of those programs or because of bad behavior, get kicked out of those programs. And so then we create this vicious snowball and this cycle um, that leads to the chaos on our streets. And we ask ourselves, why is this happening? And it's because we've never actually invested in getting the workers that we need in order to solve this problem. So one of the things that I intend to do when I'm supervisor is um, author the Crisis Workers Hiring Act. Um, because honestly, we have the funding there. There are hundreds of jobs at the Department of Public Health that are waiting to be filled. Um, the issue is that we are not making it, uh, we're not incentivizing folks to actually take these jobs. Um, on the other end of the spectrum, we talk all the time about doing hiring bonuses and increasing the salary for um, police, for police officers, right? Because we want to get more police in San Francisco. But why don't we talk about that when we're talking about our our social workers, our mental health care workers, our nurses, um, our crisis workers who are actually going to help solve these problems on our streets. Well, so, why, why is it that you think we don't talk about it? Um, honestly, because I think that people who are, there's honestly, there's just no one on the board of supervisors currently with my experience on the ground. Um, a lot of them are sort of reacting. Um, you know, honestly, it is, the city's budget process is really complex and you need to prioritize. But unfortunately, I think we've just been prioritizing the wrong end of things. Um, yes, getting more beds is incredibly important. Public safety is incredibly important. But part of the solution is also actually hiring the workers that is necessary in order to get people the help that they need. So um, the money is there. We maybe instead of hiring 200 people, we can look at hiring 150 and paying them a little bit more so that they actually get hired and we can actually be helping those folks we need to help so desperately. So all of this touches on what is you know, the huge elephant in our city uh, and that is the tragic number of unhoused people who live here. 
uh, you know, who, who are here. And I find that it is, it's a tragic situation for everyone, uh, especially for those people who, who are on the street. And you, you're in a district where you have, there are a lot of people who are unhoused. You also, there are a lot of, but you have business interest and tech. And how do you, how do you think you could balance the needs of like, of trying to help the people who need the help most, those who are don't have housing, those who are living, even if they do have housing, who who may not have enough money for food. How do you, and certainly can't afford to have their rents jacked up with the tech industry that has come in and really destabilized the area in, in for people who are not wealthy. And this is, and it, I think there's no, you know, outside of the tender line, there's no other area than let's say mid-market and parts of Soma where you see this so much, where you see this dichotomy and you see this polarization. And, and I walk around the city and I see places where I never saw people without housing before. And I mean, this happens almost every week where there's a new place. And then there's a house across the street that is that could easily sell for over a million dollars. So especially if we're going to we're really concerned about the money that comes with tourist dollars, you know, how how can we do this? How can we solve this issue? And I know that you, this is not something that you could just pass the thing up right now, but what are, what are it's a very complicated issue. But what are some of the ideas that you have that we so that we can above everything else treat people humanely? Because I think we're not doing that as a city, and I think that there are a lot of people in the city, including leaders, who are more interested in courting tech dollars than they are in helping the you know the most desperate people in the city. Yeah, I mean, I think I think you are right in that there needs to be a balance that is struck. Um, and I think, you know, uh, I have been a, a huge proponent of housing first, but it, housing, it cannot be just housing, right? And so, you know, I was really glad that Prop C, uh, Our City, Our Homes passed a while ago. As many of us know, um, the funding from that um, was meant to build, you know, 100% affordable housing here in San Francisco. Unfortunately, it got held up in the courts for several years. And so now finally that money is being, you know, uh, we're able to spend it, but um, it takes time. It takes time to, uh, you know, build <laughs> right now. And there is a whole backlog of, you know, um, materials and we don't have enough workers and all of these things. And so it's taking a while to build that housing. In the interim, we do need solutions to homelessness. Um, we do need to get people indoors. I mean, you know, that's why um, we, um, while I was in the district six office, we wrote the shelter in place hotel ordinance, right? To both give the hotels some relief and be able to pay for them for rooms, but also to help get folks indoors and stabilize people. And what we saw was a lot of people were stabilized in those hotels don't get me wrong, it wasn't a perfect rollout and it's still an imperfect process. One of the things that it did highlight though is that um, one, some of the ways in which our system is broken is that the um, coordinated entry um, meaning like the transfer of people from like getting them into shelter and then getting them from shelter into permanent supportive housing, that system is really, really broken. Um, what we need to be doing is getting hundreds of people out of shelter and into permanent supportive housing a day. And right now we're getting like maybe 10 um, and that's unacceptable. We need to ramp that up um, because we actually have the beds 
in the permanent supportive housing units, they're just sitting empty because we haven't been able to refer people quickly enough. So again, that's why I think it's really important to to have something like the Crisis Workers Hiring Act to ensure that we're hiring enough staff to be able to meet that capacity, that we're also looking at our uh, city systems and seeing where there are inefficiencies and ways in which we can actually help get people referred more quickly. Um, And it takes, I think, the experience of having worked with many of these providers like I have over the years, both, again, as a provider myself, as someone who was involved in community organizing, and as someone who's worked in City Hall and worked with these nonprofits and, and organizations, um, having those conversations with them and actually hearing what they're having to say and listening to them so that they can get the job done because they know what they need. Um, so one of the things that I also was really um, happy to work on was the A Place for All legislation, which basically... Um, guarantee that the city of San Francisco would provide a shelter bed or a place for every unhoused person on our streets. Um, Because I don't think that there's anything progressive about leaving people to fend for themselves on the streets. We have to provide places for them to go, even if it's just a safe sleep site where they can pop a tent and be safe, you know, be unharassed or harmed, have access to bathrooms and also access to services. Um, You know, I helped to, um, I worked on that legislation. Um, I think it's incredibly, it would be incredibly important tool because um, getting folks to exit homelessness, there isn't just sort of like one solution that works for everybody. Not everyone is immediately ready to go back indoors. They have their own trauma and psychoses and different things that they're dealing with. Um, And so it's important that we have a variety of options, navigation centers, shelters, and also safe sleep sites available um, so that when people are ready that we can get them in there. And then we can also um, set boundaries for Um, you know, I don't think that people should, um, you know, just be able to pop tents up on the street randomly. Um, And the reason for that is, you know, um, too often I've seen how they've completely blocked sidewalks. And when we were working in the Tenderloin specifically, the people who are impacted were our seniors, our disabled people, and our people with children and families who are forced to walk out into oncoming traffic in order to go to the grocery store, pick up medicine, run errands, go to work, go to school. Um, and it led to a lot of really chaos on our streets. So I think that there are solutions that we can implement, again, making sure that we have spaces for all of our unhoused folks to go to in the interim, fighting for to ref- uh, reforming our system and the way in which we refer people to permanent supportive housing is something I'm committed to working on. And again, I really want to introduce this and will introduce this Crisis Workers Hiring Act to ensure that we have the staffing um, available in order to actually get the people the help that they need. We need to take another quick break. We'll be back in, in just a minute. You're listening to KXSF LP. This is uh, Fifth Wave Radio Queerly Drinking. And our guest is Honey Mahogany. We'll be right back. Or an independent record store located in San Francisco's West Portal Business District. For more than two decades, the music store has featured two floors filled with music and movies, bins and bins of vintage vinyl, new and used CDs and tapes, and rare hard-to-find DVDs and videos. You can pick up a replacement record needle and even learn to play guitar all in the same visit. The Music Store, located at 66 West Portal Avenue. Thanks for supporting KXSF 102.5 FM San Francisco. Okay, so we have, let's see, about 15 minutes left. Uh, For those of you just tuning in, this is Fifth Wave Radio Queerly Drinking. I am Pamela Louie, and my guest is Honey Mahogany. Uh, Thank you so much for being here. And we're... Those who did not hear the very beginning of the interview, Honey is not only running for District 6 supervisor, but has done a lot in the city of San Francisco as a mental health professional, as an activist, and uh, brings 
to the what you're hoping to be uh, as a the supervisor a different perspective. I think the fact that you you have background as a mental health professional is something that is very different from others who have run for supervisors before. Um, I'm sure there have been other people, but I can't remember too many. I can't. There's no one that pops out to me. And as we we're just talking about the that we have this crisis of with unhoused people, I think it's really important that there's someone who does bring that kind of perspective to to this job. How else would you say that you are, let's say, your views when it comes to housing and safety? Uh, how do you feel that you differ from the the incumbent right now in District Six, Matt, Matt Dorsey? Mm. Well, I, uh, you know, one way in which we, I think, differ is that, you know, I, um, I am somebody who definitely believes that we need to build all kinds of housing, but I also believe that we need to really focus our, our, our city's resources in building deeply affordable housing, and also in exploring models like social housing, like community land trusts, that actually um, ensure that we're going to have affordability in the future. Because um, I don't think we can just, you know, uh, rely on the market for that. I think that the the way that we build um, um, affordable housing in San Francisco is deeply broken. I mean, affordable housing isn't really affordable <laughs> to people um, by any standard, even our current one. Um, so I, I, I just definitely don't think that, you know, I think that is, that is a differentiating space. Um, you know, my advocacy for programs like social housing, which I think are real solutions to our housing affordability crisis. Um, again, in terms of public safety, I also am someone um, who knows that police are a part of the solution right now, um, but also is determined to hold the police accountable. And I think that that's, you know, a real difference between me and my competitor. My competitor, you know, um, for the last four years has basically um, been um, making excuses for the police, right? I mean, was their um, lead communications um, person and writing a lot of their press releases around, you know, um, the reasons why the police were or were not doing their jobs. Um, and so I, I think it's important that we actually have someone who's gonna be able to push back against them and hold them accountable um, when necessary. Um, and I also believe that there needs to be a more comprehensive public safety strategy that doesn't rely only on police, but that also utilizes successful programs like community ambassadors, urban alchemy, and looks at new innovative models like community patrol officers, um, which is again, um, sort of unarmed police officers who are trained in de-escalation specifically in preventing crimes versus, um, um, and, and then leaving those armed officers um, able to actually be much more responsive and uh, react to crimes as they are happening. Um, so in those two areas, I think that those are the ways in which we differentiate ourselves. I mean, I think that there's a lot more that also differentiates me. You know, I mean, again, my experience, I think, as you mentioned, um, both as a, as a social worker, um, but also as someone who's actually been doing legislating over the last four years. I've, you know, written ballot measures, written um, uh, ordinances and gotten them passed at the board and at the ballot. Um, I've served as also chair of the San Francisco Democratic Party and been a leader, um, not just of our community, but of our... <laughs> our local um, political body. Um, and I know how to bring people together and, and work through tough issues and stand up for things that I believe in. Um, and then lastly, you know, also as a small business owner, there's no one currently on the board who has that experience, who is actively a small business owner. And, you know, being shut down, operating a small business is hard enough. Um, being shut down by the pandemic was also exceptionally hard. And trying to reopen in the South of Market, even during a pandemic where we have, you know, uh, just huge amounts of vacant storefronts right now 
has been incredibly challenging. And so nobody knows better than me um, the struggles of a small business. Um, and I'm going to fight every day to make sure that we streamline our permitting proce processes, but also really look at the ways in which we are not supporting our businesses. And part of that is public safety, part of that is clean streets, and part of that is ensuring, again, that um, we have a much more uh, robust economy in our downtown. And that goes with, that you know, that's both the short term of bringing conferences and tourism back to San Francisco. And then I think having a long-term vision of having a much more mixed use district in downtown. You know, um, I think another place where me and my opponent uh, differ slightly is, you know, he and the mayor are much more aligned on, um, on many things, but specifically, you know, really, um, um, quote unquote, encouraging, uh, uh, businesses um, and office space to come back to San Francisco. And I am much more of the minds that office space as it's traditionally been has has never really been a successful model for our downtown, um, has never really taken off. Um, and furthermore, it is really limiting in that it really only provides, you know, economy and business from nine to five Monday through Friday. And then for, you know, for all of these small businesses in the area, they're sort of, it's a sort of feast or famine on the weekends, it's completely dead. And in yeah. the evenings, it's completely dead. And I think what we need is actually more of a Manhattanization, um, you know, having a lot more dense housing in, in, in the district, um, converting where, where possible, um, some of our old office buildings into housing so that, you know, people are going and visiting, like the, the, the people who are visiting and using those small businesses and community spaces are people who live there and are not going to just leave at the end of the weekend or at the end of the day um, so that there are people walking their dogs and their baby carriages and kids down the street. Because again, one of the scariest things really is just an empty street. Um, and when you have that activity um, of people walking up and down, it sort of deters um, a lot of the more negative activity from happening. So um, I think it's a combination of that you know, public safety measures, and then also encouraging some businesses to um, come to San Francisco and San Francisco's downtown. Um, I know we like to, um, you know, demonize tech a lot, but um, the fact is that there are some really important factors uh, or um, sec sectors of tech that are starting to grow, like climate tech um, and food tech and biotech. Like those are all things that are growing industries right now. Um, some of them are located in San Francisco, but what we're seeing is that many of them are moving to places like the peninsula because of um, issues with zoning. And so there are things that we could do to actually um, get those companies that are right gonna do a lot of good, I think, for not just our city, but our environment and our, and our, and our planet, um, helping them be a part of the uh, renaissance of um, SOMA South of Market post pandemic. So let's get back to what you, what you brought up at the very beginning about how we can make San Francisco a more welcoming city. And one thing, especially when I first moved here, which was 30 years ago, it seemed like a much more diverse city than it is now. The population, the black population of San Francisco in, in 1970, it was 13.4% of the city was black. Now it's 6%. Uh, how can we make the city more welcoming to, I think the, to black people specifically, but just, I think like to, to other people, cause I, I the big hurdle is, is the cost of living. And especially as we were saying, we want San Francisco to continue to be a haven and a safe space for people, for LGBTQ people throughout the country who are being 
persecuted in their own communities, but it, you come here and it costs $3,000 just to share a, an apartment with someone. That's just pretty cost prohibitive. So how are we going to get through this juggernaut that we have of, of wanting to make this a, a city where everyone feels welcome and feels that this can be their home when the reality is that it's really just become a playground for the super rich? Yes. I mean, uh, I, I completely hear that. And, you know, this is the reason why I did the cultural district work, um, really to prevent the continued displacement of trans people. But, you know, I, I also want to say, like, we actually helped write the cultural district legislation that codified cultural districts and also, you know, um, put Prop E on the ballot arts for everyone that helped to fund them. And this was in collaboration with Soma Pilipinas, Calle 24, um, Japantown at the time. And we helped also, of course, create the um, Bayview African-American Cultural District and um, you know the Native American Cultural District uh, um, as well. Um, so there's so many. So this work of ensuring the continued uh, preservation of our existing and diverse communities, um, but not just that, but actually helping encourage folks to come back to the city by ensuring that there is a place for them, both culturally, but also in terms of having the opportunity to have affordable housing um, and access to affordable housing, having uh, um, the opportunity to start a business and have that be supported by these cultural districts in the city. I think a lot of these programs that go through things like cultural districts that empower our communities are a great way in stabilizing, to stabilize folks, but also to encourage folks to come back. Like the trans district, for example, is doing incredible work right now. Um, they're literally, you know, helping to subsidize rents for trans people here in the city. Um, they are, you know, they have a, a entrepreneurship program where they are um, training um, trans people with ideas around small businesses and how to start your own small business, providing support for them to get their websites up um, and also seed money for them to start their businesses. Um, there's so much that's happening there. So I think, you know, really listening to the community and what it needs and helping to prioritize how we spend some of our discretionary funding to really target those communities to help them not just survive, but also thrive and hopefully grow. Um, I will say, you know, obviously affordability is a huge piece of this. That's why, again, I do believe in models like social housing and also community land trusts, right? Um, one um, that I was really, um, you know, excited to see sort of grow and evolve is the queer the queer land trust that's been um, happening. They're mostly centered in the Castro, but also doing work in the Tenderloin and other places. Um, and so having more land trusts where, you know, again, community owned property, where you can implement things like social housing, where everyone pays 30% towards their income are ways in which we can, you know, guarantee that we are um, preserving some of those communities that are vulnerable for displacement. Um, and then additionally, you know, one thing that I was really passionate about is raising the minimum wage. And I really fought at the state level to actually raise our statewide minimum wage uh, with the Living Wage Act. Um, it was supposed to be on the ballot this year, unfortunately, due to some um, issues with the Secretary of State's office, um, it's going to be postponed to our next election. Um, but, you know, again, raising that minimum wage will help with, a, with um, people meet the meet cost of living. Um, and then again, ensuring that we build as much affordable housing and explore more affordable housing models is really important, as well as programs through cultural districts and not just cultural districts, but cultural programs in general. Well, great. We are basically out of time. Uh, my apologies, because there's. So, I feel like there's so much I do want to talk to you about and say. And I, would you be? Would you come back some other time? Because I'd love to talk to you about the stud. I would love to talk to you about you know, creating the, uh, you know, the the trans district. I mean, there are just so many things that you have done that I just 
really find compelling. And if you are not elected supervisor, there is definitely a huge place for you in, in the city. Uh, and uh, you have, you, no matter how the race goes, I would love for you to come back again. Absolutely. We'll do for sure. Okay. Well, thank you so much for, for being here. Uh, Honey Mahogany, who is a candidate for supervisor in District 6. And uh, you know, good luck for to you for throughout the rest of the campaign. And I'm sure we will we'll be talking soon. Sure. Yeah. Thank you for having me. And if folks want to learn more about the campaign, you can check out honeymahogany.com. Okay, great. Thanks so much. Okay, so uh, we'll be back in just a few minutes. Uh,